Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. I'm going to guess, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot this morning, but I'm going to guess that we've all probably screened a call before. You know, you, you, re, you get a call on your phone and you look at it and you think about who it is based on your caller ID. Maybe it's an 866 number and you're like, oh, they're selling something. And so you send it away. And you probably don't want to confess this. They might be sitting by you right now. But you get certain names that come up there and you're like, that's drama. Nope, not taking that one. <laughs> There's other people that are like 50-50. Sometimes it's good. I don't know. What do I want to do right now? And you're kind of like guessing as you're going to the phone. And, and there's some people that are like, that's fun. Hey, what's up? What do you want to do today? And, and you, so you take the call. But I want to reveal my age a little bit today. There was a time I remember when phones didn't have screens on them. Amen, someone said. All right. <laughs> I remember when phones, they didn't, they didn't have any color, they hadn't even invented color ID yet. And so there was a time, those of you who don't know this, when phones were like this just piece of plastic. They didn't match anything else in your house. It was like powder blue or cream or something. It was this piece of plastic and it sat on a table and had all kinds of wires coming off of it and cords. And some people had really long cords. Like, where are you going to go? You're attached to the wall. But anyway, it's there. And when the phone rang, it was a gamble. Like you had no idea what was on the other end of that phone. And so it could be good, it could be drama, it could be bad. Like you just don't know. And so you had to decide every time. If you didn't get it, you might never know what was on the other end of that line. And there are some powerful calls in the Bible. You think about Lazarus getting called out of the tomb. Moses with the burning bush. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 being called to follow God. Doesn't know where he's going. Doesn't know where he'll end up. Isaiah, here I am, send me. Samuel, getting called. The fishermen, drop your nets, come follow me. None of those calls are more powerful than the call that we all received when we were called to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's a general call that goes out to everybody. But those who answer the phone, you don't, you don't really know what's on the other end of that line. Like you might want forgiveness and you want to be reconciled with God, but but where does that send you? And, and, and what theologians call that call is this call to salvation is an effectual call. And what they mean by that is the very call itself actually empowers you to obey the command that it's calling you to follow. It's kind of like a wake-up call. Have you ever been to a hotel and you got something important the next morning, maybe business meetings, or you're going to go see a whole city, and you call down to the front desk and say, I'd like to get a wake-up call. And when that call happens... It moves you from one state to another. Like some, I've woken up before and been like, where am I? Like, what city am I in? What room, where is this? Like, what's going on? You didn't even know what was happening. You move from one state to another. It reminded me, when I was in college my senior year, my roommate was the RA for our hall in the dorm that we were staying in. That meant that he had a key to all the different rooms on that hall. And what would happen is that every Friday, we'd get these high school seniors that would invade our campus to see if this was where they were going to spend the next four years of their lives. And my roommate and I had this fun plan to give them a wake-up call. <laughs> At about 2 or 3 in the morning, after they went to sleep, they'd be staying in this room in the hall, and we would go in. Oh, and my roommate had this mask that he would put on. It was a skeleton mask. It looked like he was screaming. Some of you have seen this mask before. And I had a mask that I had borrowed from another guy in the hall. It was a gorilla mask. And so we'd put these on because we thought that would be a good way to wake these kids up. And, and so we'd go into this room. He'd unlock the door. We'd slide in, and he would put a black sheet over his face. And then I would crawl up right next to the bed where the kid was sleeping, and I'd either yell, wake up, or I'd like shake the bed a little bit until they looked up. And then my friend on the other side of the room would start to lower the sheet until you saw the skeleton mask. And when I realized they were honed in on the skeleton mask, then I would pop up like right two inches from their face. Bleah! 
They would all scream. Everybody screamed, like it was without a doubt. Some of them actually got out of bed and started chasing us through the halls of the dorm. It was an effectual call. <laughs> it moved them down a path. See, that's what the call of salvation actually does to us. It, it puts us on a path. But the struggle that many of us have, and I know pastorally just from talking with many of you, like what job should I have? Should I marry this person? What should my major be? Should I change jobs? Do I, should I live in this city? Is God calling me to this other place? We want to know where, where is God actually calling us to? What is he calling us into? And so today as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, some folks that are struggling with the same stuff that we struggle with, I want you to ask yourself this question. When God calls us, what is he calling us to? And we're going to see some of the answers in this passage today. If you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 17. And, and, and Paul's writing this whole book that we're calling Letters to RDU, the book of Corinth, to a, a group of Christians that have been called. He's writing to believers. In fact, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The call of salvation is a call to have relationship with God that then puts us on a path. But where does that path lead us? And just because you're called to salvation doesn't mean you're on the right path. We've seen with the Corinthians, if you've been walking with us through this series, they're messed up. Like if you went to Yelp and read the review for the church in Corinth, it'd be bad. Like those people are a mess. There's division in the church. Some people are they're following messengers. Some people are following Paul and Apollos. Instead of focusing on the message, even though Paul said, I came to proclaim to you one message, Christ, Christ crucified, and he's risen. A couple of you are listening. That's good. <laughs> because if you get that message, it would, it would saturate the rest of your life. And it would influence your marriages, your sex lives, your finances, your jobs. And, but we know that they weren't. They didn't get it. And so he's talking to them about, hey, you've got sexual sin. That's a war within. We talked about that. He said, but God's given you the gift of sex. It's a good thing to be enjoyed in the right context. And the context is marriage. And then he talks about marriage. And then they're asking questions like, what? I became a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian. Am I supposed to get a divorce? And I've got this job and now I'm a Christian. Maybe God, that means God's calling me to do something else. And I've got social standing that maybe it should change now that I'm a Christian. And Paul writes to them. They're struggling with discontentment. And look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17. We'll go Lord willing through the rest of the chapter, but verse 24 for right now. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This isn't just to you, Corinth. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Here's what matters. You can underline this. We'll come back to it. But keeping the commandments of God. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? So he uses another example. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. You're free in Christ and a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free, was called as a bondservant of Christ. You're actually a servant of Christ and you were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. And so we see in this passage, you can go through and, and count them yourself if you want to and even underline them, eight times in eight verses, the word called. There's no doubt what's being talked about here in this passage of Scripture is the calling of God. 
But then the question has to become, as we look at this passage, what kind of calling are you talking about? Because we see various different types of callings when we look at the Bible. Sometimes people are being called to a specific act of obedience. Many of you were here last week, and you saw as we were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, we had what I believe for the Christian church is the best picture of the resurrection is baptisms. And you had people that go under the water, and sometimes you'll hear people even say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new way of life. They're declaring their faith. They're taking a step of obedience. And so those people were called to a step of obedience. Some people before the service, some people during the service. We had some people who was almost after the service. If you were in second service last week, we had some people get baptized with all their church clothes on. <laughs> had one guy. Yeah, that was awesome, wasn't it? And one guy walked up to me. Well, I was singing on the front row, and Crystal, our worship leader that day, she said, you know, if you want to get in the tub, so get baptized. And I was thinking, nope, time to wrap up. We've got to get this done. It's Easter. This guy walks up to me and says, do you have any shorts? And I'm looking at him like, why do you want to borrow my shorts? And I said, <laughs> said do you have shorts? And it was kind of like, it was like his test. God was calling him to get baptized. He's like, if Scott's got shorts, then I'll get baptized. I goes, I do have shorts. He goes, I want to get baptized. Goes, Let's go. We got in the back. I said to him, I asked him if I could share this with you. I said, do you have shorts? He goes, I have underwear. I goes, we're not doing that. Nope, nope, we're not doing that. So you're getting in with your clothes on. He got baptized. Then another guy came up in his church clothes. Got, they were answering the call to obedience. And God may do that to some of you in the service. Like, just speak to you about something you didn't have any idea he was going to do today, and he's calling you to an act of obedience. I'm not even going to guess what it might be. That's one kind of call. Another kind of call is a specific assignment in life. Like, I'm supposed to evangelize these people. I'm supposed to start this business. I'm supposed to do some deed today. Like, God will call us to a specific task sometimes, but this passage isn't talking about any of those kinds of calls. It's talking about the call to salvation, the call that was mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 9 that I read to you. Every time in the, 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 the passage that those eight times that I mentioned, it's translated in English, called it's talking about the call to salvation, which is a general call to all the world. Every time the gospel is preached, that call goes out. But it's an effectual call every time somebody responds. And so really we're talking just to those of you who are followers of Jesus today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. You can become one today. But really this passage is about those of you who've trusted Jesus as your Savior, what exactly did he call you to? And one of the things we see is he, he puts us on the path to contentment. So that God's salvific call, God's call in our lives puts us on the path to contentment in Christ. That's our first point today. That God's call in our lives puts us on the path to contentment in Christ. If you think about it, we live in a place, I would even call it the domain of discontentment. Let's pull my phone back out. Think about when you hop on your phone, you get on social media, how long, how long do you have to scroll before you start thinking, man, if I just bought this diet pill, I'd be happier with my life. If I just had this vegetable slicer, look at how easy it makes everything. How come it doesn't work like that when you actually buy those things? Anyway, and then you start comparing yourself to somebody else's life, and you see their kids, and you're like, why are they all smiling in the picture? Mine wants to pick their nose the whole time or fight with each other. And, and you've got all these things that start feeding discontentment in our hearts. And then we start to buy this lie that if I just changed my circumstances, then my contentment level would rise. If I just, if I lived in a new city, you live in one of the top places to live in the whole world. If I just, if I just had a different profession, if I, if I just worked in a different office, it might be the same profession, but it was just a different, if I just had different friends, if I just planted a different kind of grass in my front yard, 
Like, we can get ridiculous with the thing. If I just had, if I just had a different church, uh-oh, don't offend, I just invited my friend from this other church, I want to get him to come here. Here's the deal. Sometimes pastors get this false idea that their job is to be a cruise director and to make a whole bunch of consumers really happy. Let's we'll put a little lime in your water, drop some offering in the box on the way out, please. Pastor's job is to equip the saints for works of service. We're supposed to be warriors for Christ, not consumers of Christ. And so we've got a battle to be in. And some of us have this idea, like, here's the problem. If you go to a different church, guess the problem? You're still there. And the problem was in your heart. And you go to a different job, you're still there. And you go to a different city, your heart came with you. No matter where you go, you are there. And you can't fix the things within us with the situations around us. Heart issues have to be dealt with at the heart level. And so what we want, we, we dwell in this domain of discontentment, and we think if we just change our surroundings, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change what's going on in our hearts. No. Contentment is found in Christ. Contentment is not found in our circumstances. It's found in our Savior. And that was the problem they were struggling with in Corinth. They're going, hey, should I stay married? Should I change my job? What about my social standing? And you see it. You go back to the passage. Look at verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God called him. It's a calling is not a very exciting one to remain. Remain where, and he uses these examples. There's two examples. One's circumcision, which is interesting. He says, if anybody's circumcised, stay circumcised. Uh, was that even an option? Yeah, there was a surgery I read about this week. And I thought, I'm not going to tell our church about that. That's weird. But there was actually a surgery to undo circumcision. I thought, Why? And who knew? Like, who's checking? But then I read some of the historical background, and I found out the tradition was back then, when you would exercise at the gymnasium, everybody exercised naked. And I thought, I'm glad we changed that. Some traditions aren't good. Like, let's change that. That when they would go to the, to the like, kind of the rec center, it was a bathhouse, and they would do a lot of business deals in the hot tub. And so what these guys were doing is they were wanting to fit in. That's what he's talking about here. And if you look at one book in the Bible, look at Galatians, it was that people were being told, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised, men. And here, the temptation was, this wasn't a highly Jewish society, the temptation was, you've got to fit in with the culture, and it's mostly a Greek culture, and they were uncircumcised, and they were comparing with one another. Doesn't comparison kill us when it comes to contentment? You start looking at what everybody else has, what they're doing, and let me just tell you something. On social media, by the way, everybody's putting forward their best foot, Okay. That's not a sin by them either. Like, who wants to put on, hey, my dog pooped in the living room. Like, no one's putting that on there, okay? Kids won't stop fighting. I'm about to pull, literally pull my hair out. No one's putting that on there. And then you compare to that, and you get all these other people, and it's like this cumulative thing, and it's not new. You remember when Peter is restored to Jesus? He's just experienced the most incredible grace in his entire life, and he's walking with Jesus on the beach, John chapter 21, and Jesus starts telling him about what's going to, he's like telling him his life. Like, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's coming. And John's walking behind him, and he goes, what about that guy? It's like, we're like prone to this. Do you know what Jesus says to him? You don't worry about him. You follow me. Keep your eyes on your Savior. The comparison kills us. And he's telling him here, this is so offensive, what he says. He says, circumcision? That doesn't, that's nothing. Like, to a Jew, they'd be like, you're saying my culture doesn't matter? That's like going, hey, you being white, that doesn't matter to God at all. You being black, that doesn't matter to God at all. You being Mexican, your Mexicanness, your whiteness, it doesn't matter. It's nothing. Quit making that the big deal. Look at your Savior. 
Do you want to know what matters? Look at verse 19. He says, if you want people to know you're my follower, obey me. Obedience should be the mark of your Christianity. What does that look like? Love God, love other people. That pretty much summarizes the whole deal. You want people to know, it's not about your circumcision. It's by the way you love them that they're going to go, there's something different. They must, they must know God. And then he gives another example. He talks about bond servants here. And let me just say this before I even go back to any of these verses. He's not endorsing slavery here. A lot of times the slavery that we think of and what was happening in the Bible, first of all, weren't even the same thing. And so nobody's being forced into labor. A lot of these people that are slaves, they were doing it to improve their lot in life. It'd be like going to work for a big corporation. Somebody's making money off of you for the job that you're doing. And so doctors, teachers, accountants, they were usually the most literate. Most of the slaves in the, 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 this time period, about 50% of the population were slaves. And so Paul's not making commentary whether slavery is right or not. In fact, if you look what he says at the end, he's going, if you can be free, go ahead and be free. You shouldn't be owned by any person. That, that's anti-Christian. But some of you, that is your state, so be the best slave that you, that you, for Christ. Obey Christ in your slavery. And so the better application for some of us might be, uh, I'm thinking about starting my own business. I don't want to work for the man. Okay, I'm, if you can't, it doesn't matter. That's not what God's calling you to. What he's calling you to here, look at how he ends verse 24. He, says, he talks about remaining and remaining and remaining in your marriage and remaining circumcised, remaining uncircumcised. Remain, and then you get to verse 24, and he doesn't say remain in your situation. He says remain with God. Here's what he's saying. God's way more concerned about who you are than where you are, where you fit on the corporate ladder, what kind of business you run, which neighborhood you live in, what city. He wants you to obey him and enjoy him. When he says remain with God, he's saying, acknowledge my presence in your life, in your being a slave, or in your being free, or in your being circumcised, or in your being uncircumcised, or whatever place you work, wherever you're at. You get this idea a lot of times that like your identity is that you're an accountant, or your identity is that you're a doctor, or a janitor, or a stay-at-home parent, or whatever your thing is in life, and he's going, it doesn't matter. Do you obey me in that? Because you're not, you're not really a nurse. You're actually my representation to your patients. You're not like an accountant. That's great. I've gifted you for a number. But you actually represent me in the financial world. That's your role. The stay-at-home parent, no, you're a picture of me to those kids. You, you are a barista. Every person that you come into contact with, you're my ambassador to those people that come to your counter from all the different professions that come walking through your place. See, what I want for you, I want you to obey me and acknowledge, remain with me and acknowledge my presence in your life. But here's the problem. Here's the, we're so discontent looking at all these circumstances, and discontentment is an enemy of Christlikeness. And we've got all these things in our culture that are telling us, if you just had this, if you just did this, if you just wore this, if you just owned this, then you'd be content. And it's foolishness. It's utter foolishness. Like one day we're going to look back at this and be like, how did anyone believe that stuff? Because even the people who get the things and become the stuff and have the, they all say, it didn't do it, it didn't work. And then we keep going after it. I was watching a video this week. A whole bunch of people, different walks of life, different little venues where they experience their success, some designers and artists and actors and financial folks and all kinds of different folks. And they were all saying the same thing. Why did I get my dream? I'm still empty. And I'll read you some of the different folks that said it that maybe are names you'd recognize. Josh Radner actor, director, producer, said, I had bought into the not uncommon notion 
then when I taste success, when I get over there, then I will be happy. So, but the strangest thing happened. As the show got more popular, I got more depressed. Eric Clapton, the musician, said this, I had everything a man could want. I was a millionaire. I had beautiful women in my life. I had cars, a house, incredible, solid gold career, a future, and every day I wanted to commit suicide. My favorite was Russell Brand. He's so raw. Those of you know who he is. The comedian, actor. He says, with a British accent that I won't try to copy. Scott 2.0, I'll do this one sometime. He says, I thought it would be good to be rich and famous. It would be good to be the opposite of this. It would be good to have stuff. It would be good to be invited to a party. But I've been invited. I've been in. And then like in the middle of a sentence, he starts a story. We're having this chat in a private Swiss members club in East London. It's super cool. There's brick walls. Everyone's doubly good looking, he says. But I've been on the inside now. I've seen the other side of this, of the looking glass. And he says, it ain't worth it. It doesn't feed your soul. And then in a moment of brutal self-honesty publicly, he says, I still feel empty inside. And then you go to the Bible, and you even look in the Bible, and you see discontentment after discontentment. Adam and Eve, if we just had this fruit, you've got everything. If I just, it doesn't work. Abraham, God's got a call on my life. If I just helped him fulfill it, it doesn't work. Just take the Israelites. How about the Israelites? Free us from slavery. Okay, doesn't work. Give us some food. Okay, doesn't work. Give us a different kind of food. Isn't that us, right? There's a lot of times when I see God do stuff in the Bible and I think, I would never do that. But when he puts quail coming out of their nose, I think, I would do that. Like if I had the power, my kids, I would do that. That's funny. And it means that God's funny too, just so you know. Food, nope, doesn't work. Different food, nope, doesn't work. So then what? Give us some land. Okay, doesn't work. Give us a king. Doesn't work. None of that's changing their heart. So what do they do? We'll create more laws. Doesn't work. You got a whole book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Everything in this creation, it's like a waste of life. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And all these different folks are going, looking for something. And then you get to the New Testament. And there's this guy who says, I know what works. I know the secret. It's the author of this book. While he's in prison, he writes a letter to a group of folks in Philippi. It's called Philippians in the Bible. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. He's just received a financial gift from them. And he's thanking them. For I have learned, I might underline that word if you've got a copy of the Bible out. In whatever situation I am, what? So the circumstances didn't matter? To be content. Listen to what he says next. I know how to be brought low. This is a guy who's been beaten, stoned, flogged multiple times, left for dead, shipwrecked, floating out of the sea. And I know how to abound. He led this one woman, Lydia, to Christ in the book of Acts. She's super wealthy, and he stays with her. Get the church rolling there. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So you got this guy going, I know the secret. I know, I know what it is. And it doesn't matter what the circumstance, so it's not the circumstances. And, and then he says this next verse, it doesn't mean that you're going to win the championship if you cheer for your team. I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. But then you go back to what he said. He learned this. 
So here's the sad part for me as a pastor to you, but also kind of the exciting part because you gotta go out and do something with what we're talking about today. I can't give you like a formula to learn this. I can't tell you like a bumper sticker slogan. If you just got this, if you just memorized this slogan, then you would learn contentment. You know how he learned contentment? It's by being in those circumstances. It was when he was in, do you think when Paul was floating around at sea, by the way, and he shipwrecked, like, think about this. He's on some debris, like it's not like they had life preservers, like in an airplane, you know, the, the, the stewardess comes out and tells you, no, he's just floating on like a piece of wood. It's dark. Anybody scared of sharks? In open water, like the moon comes out, it's not like he was sitting there going, the water's kind of nice. Like the secret of contentment wasn't to like make the best of your situation. And when he's in plenty, it wasn't just like, man, this is, this is good wine. These are some nice, some good food. It wasn't, it wasn't about the circumstances. It was Jesus Christ meeting him in the circumstances. Amen. See, some of you, God's got you in the circumstances he's got you in because he wants to meet you in those circumstances. And so you're trying to fight to get out of them, your singleness, your job, your marriage, your whatever scenario that you're in. And he's going, I why don't you just ask this question, where am I in this? Obey me in this. Remain in this, that I meet you in this, that you remain in me. Verse 19, verse 24 is what I just quoted to you. He's got you in your circumstances so he can meet you in the circumstances. That's how you learn the secret to contentment. It's not just by knowing that the contentment's not found in our circumstances, it's found in our Savior. You can quote that, you can put that on a bumper sticker, and it doesn't anything to your heart. It's when you get into the circumstances and you say, God, where are you? How are you wanting to meet me? in this moment of tension, victory, where abundance, need, when I'm low, when I'm high. And if you want to know the answer, the secret, it's the simple, it's like the worst kept secret in the whole Bible. Trust God. Like, who is it that called you? Christ. Who is it that, that's significant in your life that's gonna satisfy you? Christ. Who is it that gives your identity to you? Christ. Who died for you? Christ. Who rose from the dead? Christ. Guess what the answer is? It's not just because it's Sunday school. It's Jesus. He's the secret. And when when he puts you on that path, you know what it does? It changes your perspective on life. And that's what we see next. You talk about how does this happen? What does this look like? So our second point is this, that, that God's call puts us on a path to an eternal perspective. Not only does it put us on a path to contentment, but it puts us on a path to eternal perspective. And what happens next, for the sake of time, I'll read you some of these first verses, verses 25 through 26 here. He's talking about engaged couples. And then verse 27, he says this, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. And he's saying, are you married? Don't get a divorce. Are you free? Maybe you're widowed or divorced from a wife. You don't have to seek a wife. But if you do marry, this isn't like a law. He's just, he's giving you wisdom here. He says, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. It's not like a sin to change your circumstances. It's not wrong to get another job. What he's showing them here is there's some distinct advantages, though. And he says here, he says, yet those who will marry will have worldly troubles. You're concerned about things here. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And I'd spare you that. But then look at verse 29. He says, and this is what I mean, brothers. This is what I'm talking about. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they're not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal, and this is like doing business, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now the key to understanding this passage, all these verses, is what was said in verse 29 and verse 31. Kind of brackets the deal. It says, 
Our time has grown very short, verse 29, verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. What he's talking about is the end. If you just take some of these verses, rip them out of context, you can start a cult. That's one thing. But you can really misuse the Bible. He says here, those who have wives, live as though you have none. What is he, did you read what you said earlier? Like, did you hear Pastor Dave preach a couple weeks about the importance of the marriage covenant? That was in this chapter. It's not like Paul forgot what he said. He's not, did you remember when we talked about sex? Is God's good gift? Is he telling married couples not to have sex right after he just told them to have sex? No, no. He's telling somebody who's mourning. Certainly Paul isn't such a bad pastor that he doesn't realize what a big deal mourning is to people. People certainly in the church of Corinth, like people in this church, their kids have died. Their spouses died. They've lost jobs. They know mourning. He's not saying, hey, hey, your kid just died. How are you doing? Good. No big deal. That's not like the application of this passage. What he's saying here is that in comparison to eternity, all the stuff that happens here, it's not a big deal. This light and momentary affliction that we experience, Second Corinthians talks about that. Your marriage, you're not going to be married in the resurrection. You can email me about that later. It's just temporary. Like all that stuff that happens here that's a really big deal while we're here, he's saying as if it doesn't matter. It's not wrong to buy stuff, but don't be absorbed by your stuff. It's not wrong to do business, but if your whole life is about your, your business, you've got a problem. He's pointing us to an eternal perspective because everything here is so temporary. It's like James says in the book of James, what is your life? It's just a mist. Do you know what Job says? Job chapter 7, verse 7, that to God and God's timing, your life is like a breath to him. So I get impatient when he doesn't answer my prayer in like two weeks. My whole life is like a breath to him. He's saying all this in light, you live this life in light of eternity because this stuff is so temporary. All this stuff is temporary. Do you know what would happen if we would live in light of eternity? It would change everything about how we live now. And he says here, he says, whether you're talking about Jesus coming back or whether you're talking about you dying, it's not very long before this is going to happen. So it's been a long time. Now, in God's perspective, it's not been a long time since he, he was here and now before he comes back. And here's the deal about Jesus coming back, just so you know, too. Christians get all like bent out of shape about time frames and sequence of events. Here's what all Christians agree on. Jesus wins in the end. Amen? So I know you have different views, and you get in your small groups and be like, does this happen first? Most Christians agree it could happen at any moment. And Jesus wins. Let me ask you this question. How many of you here watched the Hurricanes game seven this past week? Anybody here? All right, a good chunk of you watched that. Some of you maybe didn't stay up late enough to watch it, but maybe you recorded it. How many people have ever recorded a sporting event and you knew the outcome before you watched the sporting event? Raise your hand. Doesn't that change the way you watch that? Let's assume your team won. I saw you raise your hand. I know you're a Lions fan, so that's not, that doesn't help you. But everybody else here, let's pretend I'm a Lions fan. That's how come I know that. We were texting each other this week. At any rate, whatever. Let's imagine you know that your team won the game before you watch the game. Doesn't that change how you view the game? Because when the ref does something that you don't agree with, you don't have to question the integrity of his eye doctor, right? You don't have to threaten his life with every fandom wrathfulness you've got in that moment to your TV. But if they, if like, I don't know if you watched the, the Hurricanes when they're in overtime and they get a penalty, I was like, oh, we're toast, it's over. If I had known the outcome of the game, I'd be like, how do they overcome this? How does this, how's this going to work itself out? It'd be so, it removes, when we live in light of eternity, knowing that Jesus wins, it removes anxiety from our lives. What do we have to work? Jesus wins. The worst thing that could happen is we're going to die. Guess what? We get to be with him. It's a win-win. So 
It, it takes the anxiety off. Do you know what else it does when we live in light of eternity? It puts us on fire for evangelism. Because if you know who wins, and guess what? At the end, you can read the book of Revelation all you want, try to figure out all the symbols and stuff. Here's, here's a summary. It's not hard for Jesus to defeat Satan. He doesn't need you to, like, start working on your nunchuck skills. Like, he's got this, okay? And it's really bad for everybody on the other team. And he says, Who's in the, if you're not for me, you're against me. And so what ends up happening is you know how this thing ends. And so let's get as many people as we can on the winning team. And out of love for those people and out of love for God, it transforms how we interact with people who don't know Jesus when we live with an eternal perspective. It changes the way we're going to experience eternity when we get there. Like, I don't know how many of you have planned a vacation before. I didn't know when I married my wife how much she loved travel and adventure. And we got married, and we had, like, a bunch of school debt, and we didn't have any chance of, like, traveling anywhere ever in that moment. And I remember she would, like, stay up at night, and she'd go search on the Internet and find in places that she wanted to visit someday. And then I'd ask her in the morning, where'd you go? How did it go? And she'd tell me about these different places. By God's grace, that was over 20 years ago, and by God's grace, we would, oh, I guess it wasn't 20 years ago, 18 years ago, whatever. I know when we got married. <laughs> We've gone to some of those places. And you know what happens? We get there, and she sees them, and she'll start crying. And I'm like an emotional wimp. Like, I don't, know, I don't know how to cry. I don't know how to do that stuff. And so she starts crying, and I do what I do with my car. If a car goes bad, I just start looking at it and asking dumb questions. Like, I don't know what to do in that moment. So I'm like trying to fix it and go into man mode. It's terrible. Until I realize they're tears of joy, that the actual thing is better than what she had seen in brochures or had looked up on the internet. And do you realize what eternity is going to be like? Like, forget the streets of gold. You're not going to be worried about, you know, all my relatives I haven't seen in a long time. Jesus is there. Who pursued you, came after you, gave you that wake-up call, called you into relationship with him. He's got a, a sweet tattoo that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're going to be like, whoa! He's holding in his hand the keys to death and hell. You're going to be with him, the one who did defeat death, because that's why there's no sting of sin. That's why there's no, no victory of death, because he's there. You're going to be with him. It's like streets of gold, bonus. Hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. Did you see Jesus? You know how awesome that's going to be? He's saying to have an eternal perspective is to have a perspective where your eyes are on Jesus Christ. You read the, the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and they lived like they had a city that wasn't here. Do you know why you're discontent here? This isn't your home. You weren't made to be here. We're citizens of heaven, and we're made to be with him. And so he's saying, in your circumstance, I want to meet you. I'm going to grow you. You got a job while you're here is to evangelize and disciple people. And I don't really care whether you're circumcised. Or not. I don't care if you're white or if you're black or if you're Mexican. I don't, that doesn't matter. And it, maybe you can start your own business. Go ahead. But if you can't, just keep working for the man and be the best employee you can be. But focus on me. And then he goes on and he shows what he's ultimately going after in this passage is an undivided devotion. And he, he puts it back into the context. He was talking about marriage, talking about singleness. And he says in, in the end here, he says, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Anxiety is literally translated as things that pull you in different directions. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. No one amen. All right. And his interests are divided. 
The unmarried or betrothed man, woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I'll do it. Amen. And I say this for your own benefit. He's not against marriage here. He's just being really practical. And he's saying there's some distinct advantages for singles. And so that should be a word to our church, by the way, too, speaking of singles. Like, it's not like the goal is to get married. It's saying, actually, if you're going to remain single, let me tell you one of the distinct advantages. You've got a whole lot more time. You can be singly focused as a single, unlike a married person. But he's not saying, oh, married people, sorry for you, can't be devoted to Jesus. No, his goal for all of us is the same. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, not putting this as a bondage on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what he's going for. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, and he gives incredible grace here through this, all these different circumstances. This passage is strong. And it has to be, right? If you're engaged, you should be having strong passions. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's not a sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has discerned this in his heart to keep her as a betrothed, engaged, he will do well. So then, he who marries to his betrothed does well. But he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord, only, believe, only marry another believer. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And that's the refrain through here. Remain, remain, remain. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I think like, the, like Isaiah and like Jeremiah and like Ezekiel, like the prophets of old, I've got the Spirit of God telling me these things. I, don't have a, I can't go to a verse where Jesus quoted this, but I'm just telling you, this is wisdom here. And what God's going for in your heart is undivided devotion. You think about the call of God. What did he say to the disciples? He said, you come follow me. Drop your nets. Get rid of the things that are dividing. Your do- Some of the disciples were married. Some of them weren't. Come follow me with undivided devotion. And he's saying, for some of you single people, it's easier. Think about the widow and her might. And she comes and she gives all that she had to live on. And that might have been a different scenario if she was still married. Because now you have to have another person agree to that. And so married people, some of you are thinking about getting married. I see some of you out here that are engaged. Listen, what you need to be asking yourself is a question of, is being with this person help me be more devoted to Jesus or not? Because I heard, I heard one pastor say that, that his wife actually says that their marriage is like the amazing race. There's all these obstacles, all these different things. They're going through life, and the goal is make as many disciples as possible. If you've got a spouse like that, Get married. They make you better, but, but what about if I'm married and my spouse isn't helping me follow Jesus? Well, he's already talked about that. Remain married, try and win them to Christ. Some of you need to disciple your spouse, but what we're going for here is undivided devotion. So the question for us is this, what divides your devotion? Because we're all in pursuit of this. Nobody's 100% there. What is it that divides your devotion? And that might be the thing that as God's moving up and down these aisles today, and speaking to hearts, that he taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm calling you to that specific act of obedience. I won't guess what it is. The Spirit has to speak to your heart. But what I want for you is, in that circumstance, obey me. Verse 19b. Remain in me. Enjoy my, invite me in. Invite me into that experience. Because that's where contentment is found. And that's going to change your perspective to more eternal perspective. And then ultimately it's going to do, it's going to give you an undivided devotion to me. 
That's the path. See, when you answered the call to salvation, I bet most of you it was like that old school phone. You had no idea what you were getting yourself into. Well, here it is. And he's calling you on that path. Verse 17 literally means when it says there, the life that you lead, the walk that you have. And a walk is a progressive thing. that You take steps forward. Some of us get sidetracked and we go on rabbit trails and he's calling you back on the path today. Let's pray.